0: There is no organization up until now that has been solely focused on the community broadband models.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I'm sitting up here in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm choking on the wildfires from Canada. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, but I have a really fun conversation in store today. We are talking with Gigi Sohn, uh, who is someone who I'm guessing everyone knows uh, you know something about your background, Gigi. Uh, but you are currently juggling two major tasks. Uh, Benton Senior Fellow, where you're a public advocate. And you're the Executive Director of the American Association for Public Broadband. Welcome.
0: It's great to be here, Chris.
1: It's really great to, to be talking to you. I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, a couple of different topics, a lot about how um, municipal networks are under attack uh, and public networks are, um, are something that uh, have, have uh, been prioritized in legislation, but perhaps not in actual deed. And we'll get into that. But we'll start by just talking a little bit about what you're up to with these two organizations and what they are. Uh, we're going to talk about Benton first because we're going to talk about at least. So Benton, wonderful organization benton uh institute for uh broadband and society if i remember correctly um yeah so what are you doing with benton
0: so i'm working with a bunch of folks in three states in missouri in arizona and pennsylvania and we have a state coordinator in each state all happen to be women uh, and they are basically building statewide coalitions to not over, not only oversee the spending of the, you know, of the money that came out of the infrastructure bill or the bead money money. I assume that folks that listen to your podcast know all about the bead money, uh, but it's more than that. I mean, that's sort of the initial kind of that's the entry drug is the bead money, rebuild uh state interest and con- state constituency interests in broadband and broadband policy in an effort to get the states more engaged so starting with the pandemic the states realized that they could no longer just leave broadband policy and broadband funding to the feds right They found they found themselves with kids who couldn't go to school and people who couldn't go to work so they started to pick up the mantle because the federal government had given that authority away, if you remember, uh, you know, uh, the Trump FCC. So you really started to get engaged in the policy. Unfortunately, in the early part of this century, the big telecoms and cablecoms went to the states and said, you don't need to worry about this broadband nonsense. The feds will take care of it. So a lot of them gave up their authority. So ultimately, what I'd like to see once we, you know, get past the bead funding issues, which is going to take a while, take a couple of years, is for you know organizations of all kinds to ask the state to reinstate its authority to oversight authority over broadband so um i'm excited to work at the state level uh, missouri act is actually uh unbelievably uh well in advance of the other two uh, but we've got like i said great state coordinators and i'm i'm very very high in this project
1: yeah, and you've mentioned multiple occasions that uh, the local and state are where it's at. That's where the action is now. Absolutely. So, just uh, just for, pe- for people who aren't as familiar, um,
0: why why is that the case? Number one, the Communications Act anticipates the states being involved. Okay, but the feds, basically, at the behest, really, of a lot of the um, you know big cable and telecoms. They were sort of preeminent for about 20, 30 years. And uh, and the states got out of it, again, at the behest of these big companies. So again, now the states realize, and, and remember, the infrastructure bill gives all the money to the states. Mm-hmm. So they have no, <laughs> they don't have a choice. They have to be engaged. They have to care. Uh, but my idea is I've built coalitions like this at the federal level but now it's time to build up at the state level and it's much more it's much more time intensive uh and again I can't just walk into Missouri and Arizona and Pennsylvania and say oh Gigi Stone's here I'm going to build you a coalition that's why we're we're working with folks who actually live in those states and know this issue to build a coalitions
1: Yes. And that's what that's what I agree we need, because uh, that's where the accountability will come from. And that's one of the things that has been uh, sorely lacking is uh, is accountability on where money has gone and, and who's regulating and that sort of a thing. But we could talk about that a whole lot. But let's jump over to the American Association for Public Broadband. Uh, what what is this group for people who haven't been listening to my past shows, people who just saw your name in the podcast feed and decided to listen for the first time in a while?
0: So AAPB is the only trade organization that is 100% dedicated to the promotion and defense of community broadband. So there are other trade associations that focus on getting fiber out there. Fantastic. You know, they focus on, you know, ensuring that, you know, rural communities and tribal communities get connected. This is all great. But there is no organization up until now that has been solely focused on the community broadband models. Uh, And that's my goal. So the three things I wanna do with this organization quite simply is number one, I wanna grow the field. So now there's what about 700 municipal community broadband systems. I wanna double that amount in five years. I wanna defend against the attacks like we just saw in Bountiful City, Utah, which I'm more than happy to talk about. Uh, and third, I want to provide a place where so there's a lot of interest now among vendors who never cared one whit about community broadband, you know accounting firms, law firms, equipment builders, you know software builders, they all see that this is a model whose time has come, mm-hmm. and particularly with all the money floating out there, see great opportunities for it. I mean I want to give them an opportunity to talk to communities about working with them, uh, and and similarly, if there's a community thinking about building and don't, you know, don't have the slightest idea, I want to provide them the resources, but the, the main two things really are to to promote, 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 and defend, defend, defend.
1: And you said thinking about, right, these don't have to be communities where they've already voted to put money into it. This is AAPB is an organization that fits almost any local government that wants to take an interest in solving these issues, is my impression.
0: Yes. And I will tell you, now that we've had our first victory in Bountiful City, uh, I'm moving towards doing something that I'm hearing from a lot of communities that are thinking about. It. It's like, it sounds great. I see all these successful models, but I have the slightest idea how to start. So I want to create a toolkit, a primer, uh, a series of webinars that basically walk uh, community officials through this is how you do it, and following on that, start a mentorship program. So, you know, you've got all these communities in Utah and Colorado and Tennessee and North Carolina that have done it and done it successfully, pair them with, I know there are communities in New Jersey who are itching to do this and, 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 you know, communities like all over the country, Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania has a very bad barrier, but there are folks all over the country who are really seriously thinking about doing this but don't know where to start. And it would be great to sort of pair them with a community that has not only started is finished and done so successfully.
1: Now, hearing you say that, I, I just have to say like, I've been in this business for 16 years and, and I think of you as someone who uh, led on the net neutrality fight on title II, you know, big national issues. You, um, you know, municipal broadband has been a loud niche, but it seems to me like you're seeing a very strong future for this well beyond what it's done in the past, which is, you know, been despite very high profile successes, you noted there's 700 out of like tens of thousands of municipalities.
0: Right. I mean, it's still a very small niche, right? Look, when I was at the FCC under Tom Wheeler, we tried to preempt the laws of the states of Tennessee and, and North Carolina, which prohibited community broadband systems from growing, going beyond their footprint. We didn't succeed. uh, And the federal government, frankly, has very limited power unless Congress would like to pass a law, which (laughs) let's not let's not put down any money on that. Right. But, you know, people always say, well, you, you were involved in these big federal issues. Like, why do you care about this niche issue? Well, first of all, I've always been passionate about it. Like, you know, I would travel to all these places that had just built like Westminster, Maryland, right? I would I would go and give speeches and openings. And, and I also just love the people because it's not a partisan issue. Like I'll re- I remember when I went to the Westminster, Maryland grand opening, these Republican County Council members came up to me and they said, Gigi, we begged Verizon and Comcast to build in Westminster. And Westminster is about 75 miles west of Baltimore. And it's nothing but cornfields. It's beautiful, but it's, it, it's like, it's really rural, not that far from a major urban area. We begged them to come build, and they wouldn't do it. And this is this is what we had to do. And I just love that, right? I love that that it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a partisan issue at all. It was about we have this community; it's a vibrant community. There's a college there, but we can't we can't attract young people to our community unless we do this. Uh, I, I just I just felt a lot of joy, and I I, um, I announced that I was going to be. Doing this job at the Broadband Communities Conference, you were there in Houston, and I just loved hanging out with the local folks. I mean, they they really care again about about serving their citizens. Like, I don't want to get into details about my nominations process, but what you see a lot in Washington D.C. is you have these people who are elected representatives, and they don't give a rat about what their constituents want. Right. All, all they care about is you know where's my ne- next check coming from. And that's the polar opposite of state and local that I find is what they care about is how do I serve my people because they're not happy if they can't get really fast broadband that maybe their relatives have in a city. So it's just it's a it's a different level of of its community. Right. But it's a different Mm -hmm. level of of camaraderie. And I really enjoy it a lot.
1: Well, before we get into the the more depressing and and, and more of an area of conflict around the attacks against municipal networks and and what's happening there i didn't want to i want to put this in context because i feel like too many people think of this at the internet as something that's baked like we kind of like it's it's done it's mature and you're someone that has worked on radio and television and you have a perspective i think of those industries and knowing that the internet is still developing and we could lose it like we could we could lose it kind of like we lost cable tv and, and broadcast radio uh so just a word on that if you don't mind
0: No, absolutely. I wouldn't call it mature. I'd call it immature. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we really are at an inflection point. I mean, first of all, like the federal government is throwing tens of billions of dollars uh, to get everybody connected. And we have to make sure that that's successful because- the federal government between 2010 and 2020 spent about depending on who you talk to 50 and 75 billion dollars to get everybody connected and they failed and they failed miserably so just the fact that money is getting thrown at making sure mm-hmm. everybody is connected uh is no guarantee of everything anything and everybody is admitting even you know folks in the government that that kind of money 45 billion or it's 47 billion. If you look at the middle mile money, the tribal money is not going to do the trick. There's got to be other investment. So we are at a critical time for making sure everybody gets connected. And that's just the connection. And there's a whole other conversation to be had about, you know, the, you know, the content and the services that, you know, I, I, I saw my Twitter feed turn into X and I just didn't, I just was so discouraged, you know, so, (laughs) but, you know, look, even the, the access part, there's still a terrible risk. And and particularly, I think we'll talk about, you know, how this, how this program, this $47 billion program could go awry of just giving it all to the same gatekeepers uh, who, you know, made net neutrality necessary. uh, And who, you know, uh, who are charging still ridiculously high prices for something that should be practically a commodity at this point, so yeah, we are in a very tenuous time, I would say, both on broadband access, which is really what I focus on, but also just on the future of the internet as a tool for democracy as opposed to a tool for just hate and trolling and just you know and 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 bad health. There's so much that broadband enables that's good, we can't let it be captured by the 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 folks that are bad.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm sharing that vision. And what's nice is, as you know, through your career, is that there are voices on all sides who uh, share our vision for a vibrant democratic medium, not just uh, one that's controlled by the people that can write the biggest checks. Correct. Um, So the uh, the attacks on the municipal networks are coming fast and furious. You you started at AAPB, right? Right. As bountiful, Utah was was a suffering one. So tell us what was happening there.
0: I'll tell you all about the road to Bountiful. It's Bountiful City. The city went through like a 3-year process to, you know, to figure out how to own its own network. And they went to the incumbents who were CenturyLink and Comcast first and said, "Okay, this is the network we want. Would you like to work with us?" And they said, "Nah, not really interested. We're we're, we're cool with what we're doing, you know, delivering slow and expensive broadband. We're 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 cool with that." Mhm. So they underwent a feasibility study and they had an RFP process, which again, the incumbents were invited to apply to. And in May of this year, the city council voted by a 5-0 unanimous decision to partner with Utopia Fiber, which provides uh, network services throughout open access services throughout the state of Utah and also in Bozeman, Montana. And I think they're also probably going into Canada. They decided to contract with them again. No controversy, supported by the community. And in June, a group called the Utah Taxpayers Association, which you know is very vague as ma- many dark money groups are—like you don't know who runs them, you don't know who's on their board, you don't know who funds them—hired uh, a group called Gather Utah to gather signatures to put the decision whether to move forward with this network, which would already been decided by the city council to a vote on the November ballot. Okay. And these are signature gatherers that only get paid if they get, get a signature. So they're going around to homes and by testimony in front of the city council, many of them said, Oh, well, we represent the government. Many of them said we support the fiber broadband project. So, you know, people you've probably done it. I've done it where, Oh, it sounds great you know, set the signature. Uh, And had they succeeded, which they did not, we found out last week, yay, Uh, they didn't have enough signatures of registered voters to put this to the ballot, but they did at one point. But the city council really pushed very, very hard to get people to remove their signatures from the ballot. And I did have this op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune, which I hope raised the profile. I will tell you, I heard from a lot of friends who live in the area, including a former mayor of Salt Lake City, a guy named Ralph Becker, all said, oh, we saw this, it was great. So hopefully I had a role in raising the profile and just saying, okay, these are deceitful tactics. You don't know who's behind them. We can guess who's behind them. Uh, But in any event, this is not what they say it is. And in fact, many, many, many people took their names off the petition. So the petitions fell short. And had they succeeded pushing the question to November. Well, first of all, shovels were supposed to go into the ground this month, July. Well, obviously, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in August. But had they succeeded in pushing it to November, given construction schedules and, mm-hmm. uh, and the weather and everything, it probably wouldn't have been started. Network probably wouldn't have been started till next April. And Utopia would have had to reprice a lot of things, right? Because prices go up. So it would have cost, you know, by some estimates would have cost the city another million or two uh, to complete the project. This is assuming it got over the finish line, which it probably would have. Right. I think the members of the community would have voted for it, but it would have it just would have, you know, uh, put in so much delay. And, you know, look, the companies would have had four more months to try to convince people to vote against it. They'd make up some nonsense reason why they should vote against it. So this was a huge victory. Uh, for Bountiful City, it's a huge victory for community broadband, and I, I consider it a victory for AAPB as well.
1: Yes, I I absolutely think so, because without a coordinated response, then uh, people would not have been out there taking their names off of it, and uh, it wouldn't have been raised to that level of visibility. Uh, We saw this before in Longmont, Colorado, when they in 2009 had an election and uh, Comcast via the, the Colorado Cable Association dropped at that point a record amount of money on the election. And, uh, and, and we heard was that, you know, people voted no, like 60, 65%. And then afterward, we're like, wait, what did I vote no on? You know, and that's when they did the research and they immediately started going to city council and saying, we want to redo, like, we want to do it over again. So these tactics work, right? Longmont would have been built two years earlier, if not for that. So, um, there's a real history of these things working. This is not, um, this is them throwing sand in the gears, uh delaying uh the time in which they would lose a monopoly. And that's what we see, Um, you know, and, and you mentioned the taxpayers group. Um, uh, I don't think you've ever been approached by a taxpayers group on all the work that you've done uh, that said, you know what, we're really concerned about this money going to AT&T, right? Like, <laughs> it's not something that happens. <laughs>
0: No, no, it really does not. And and uh again, this wasn't going to affect the taxpayers because they weren't they weren't using tax bonds. So it's just a bunch of nonsense. And again, it's 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 companies hiding behind dark money groups, hiding behind a second dark money group like the gather Utah. You couldn't mm-hmm. figure they didn't even have a website, couldn't even figure out who they were either. And you know, part of the role I see for AAPB is to what I say, send the bat signal when this kind of thing is happening. So if if any folks in communities who are starting to build or looking to build or have already built, because I don't think it, it matters whether or not you already have a, a network up, they're still going to try to screw you up. Let me know. GSone at AAPB.us. Let me know if this is happening and I will do my level best uh, to raise the alarm. And uh, it's, it's nice to have a, a a first win. I've only been doing this for six weeks and uh it's it's good to to start off at the out of the box this way
1: yes and it's also good as a reminder i mean this is uh you know utah is not known as being a uh a haven for even sewer socialists let alone the the proper people who would call themselves socialists so like it's a it's a reminder once again a theme that you and i have hit on a couple of times that this is not a partisan issue
0: i mean what what mayor what governor doesn't want to, you know, run for re-election on "I got fast, broad- affordable broadband to everybody," right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is again, it's like if your grid goes down, you don't have electricity or water, like you have lousy water. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's the same thing. I was just actually in Ocracoke Island, North Carolina, where I had a, a vacation, although. Uh, this guy who has a, a public radio show recognized me. So I had to do his public radio show on my way out. And I was describing it like they've been having all kinds of problems with the ferry. You can only get to Ocracoke Island by ferry. It's the southernmost island in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I said, so it's just like the ferry, right? Yep. I mean, if if it doesn't work, people are not going to stay for any length of time on Ocracoke Island because it, it, you can't telecommute. Uh, you can't. And, and by the way, The only way you get medical care for more than a cold in Ocracoke Island is if you either have telehealth or you get medevaced out of there. So having rural, you know, real strong rural health care is 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 really, really important. So you're starting to I'm sorry, just hear from these small communities saying places like New Jersey, the state of New Jersey saying we're you know, we're so dissatisfied with the service we have. This has got to be better if we're going to attract business, if we're going to attract tourists, if we're going to attract residents, young residents. So it's it's pretty universal. But now, again, my challenge is to get the tools in people's hands and get them to overcome whatever fear they might have about doing this. Because it's not a small thing. You know that. You know this, Chris, right? It's yep. not a small thing to build this network. It, it takes foresight. It takes money. And it takes a thick skin. And this is what was amazing. The, the Bountiful City, City Council, you kind of look at them and they're mostly young and you know they punch back. You know, they had a special town hall, which was either seen or attended by 1600 people. It's not a big city. OK, uh, on this on the whole issue of the of the of the petition and the and, and the broadband network. So people cared deeply about it. And they were like, no, we're not just going to we made this decision. We spent three years doing all these studies and doing this right. And we are not going to be waylaid by, you know, some industry backed dark money group. And so I give them all the credit in the world.
1: Yes. And I would I would highlight it couple of things there is where we're going to move into bead in a second bead bead is primarily for uh folks that don't have anything but if you're talking about bountiful and if you're talking about most cities in new jersey where and similar with other areas that utopia has expanded into these are areas where there is a, a level of service that uh the fcc maps would show are totally served right there's some level of cable and sometimes even in new jersey fiber optic service because verizon has built so much of that but but in many cases, it's not getting the job done, whether that's affordability or something else. And so that's something that AAPB uh, will be working on is both areas that have no service, but increasingly areas that have something, but it's not getting the job done.
0: Yeah. And you and I have talked about this, right, you know, about whether community broadband is probably going to be more in those, you know, in those gap areas or are filling mm-hmm. the gaps As opposed to going out to far out rural areas, I I hope it could be both. But I think I think you're right. It's probably going to be more the former than the latter.
1: Yeah. So Bede came about the the Biden administration to its immense credit uh, came out and said, we want to fix all the markets. We want to do all this. We're going to put one hundred billion dollars into it. Um, and Congress disagreed, uh, but still kept a lot of the 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 idea that that this would be um it would it would have to be eligible to all uh, cities and public entities and tribes. Um, and then um, they also put a lot of other rules that I've spent a lot of time complaining about. <laughs> I'm not going to rehash those here. Um, but um, I, I think you, as you've been dealing dealing with this, are starting to get more and more concerned about whether cities truly are going to have a shot at this money.
0: Yeah, I am concerned, and I don't want to put blame on. I think what happened here is a a combination of things. Is number one, you know, the the infrastructure bill was passed what in September of 2021, right? And had very short timelines, uh, and you know, the head of NTIA, Alan Davidson, is a great guy. And I think is you know doing a really good job didn't get on board till January. At that point, he had, what, like four months to sort of do the initial rules. So everything's been, you know, fast, fast, fast. A lot of the the things that I'm concerned about, at least one in particular, was borrowed from the FCC. And I think it was misguided. I'll talk about that. That's the requirement that uh, a a subgrantee have a letter of credit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think things were, you know, because of the rush, 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 things were kind of borrowed quickly without maybe... Fully thinking about how they might impact uh, the folks that um, you know that that might want to go for these grants, and then there's just the political expediency. And we saw this with the off right? Where uh, you know, right before the the 2020 election, Ajit Pai pushes out, you know, nine billion dollars of the or was it sixteen billion dollars? Excuse me, of the off and gives it to a whole bunch of entities that couldn't build and that they should have known couldn't build uh and they went ahead and you know pushed out the money anyway because they wanted you know then president trump to be able to say oh look at all this money i gave to you rural areas look rural folks i'm serving you even though a lot of those grants were not really serving uh rural folks so they i think there's a similar desire among the biden administration it's understandable but it concerns me because i don't think speed makes necessarily good policy in this space
1: right we don't want to go too slow we don't want to go too fast there's a middle ground we need to be hitting
0: there's a middle ground we need to be hitting and you know look the money is not going to go out by 2024 anyway right the timelines but i think they want to be able to say it's just about here like they mm-hmm. did the there the white house had a huge uh gathering uh when it announced the allocations to the different states and you know the numbers were kind of mind-boggling, right? I mean, what, Texas got $3 billion and in Missouri, which I'm working in, got $1.8 So, you know, they want more of those kind of moments where they could say, look at what President Biden has brought to your state. But again, you know, sometimes rushing things allows for things not to get fixed that maybe need to get fixed. So I don't know if there's any way to slow things down, but I'm hoping that all the concern that I'm hearing from a lot of folks at the state and local level, even at the federal level, uh, to get some of these problems fixed, will it will still happen. I mean, again, it's I, I understand NTIA is feeling overwhelmed. You know, the FCC has a role to play in this as well. But if you don't do it right, then we're just going to repeat the same mistakes that we made for, between 2010 and 2020, and who wants that?
1: right we're not going to get into it uh i have uh, perhaps over-ranted on the uh the data that we we still don't have <laughs> that's accurate but um but let's talk about that letter of credit uh and for people who are interested um i feel like connect humanity put out a recent blog post that that goes over some of the numbers to help people get an appreciation of of just what a hassle it is for both local private companies, as well as um, there's additional hurdles for public entities. So so when you say letter of credit is, a, is one of your big concerns, why is that?
0: Well, because you, you have to put aside so much money to get the letter of credit. A, a, a small local community doesn't have that. A small business, a minority-owned business, a woman-owned business is unlikely to have that kind of money to just stick in the bank until you're done in four years. Right. The big guys, even though I'll tell you they're complaining about it, they hate it too, but they can do it. Right. I mean, you know, I, you've got to put aside twenty-five percent of whatever your grant is. That's gonna be, you know, maybe tens of millions of dollars. In a lot of cases, you know, the small entity, they don't have any money until they get the grant. Mm-hmm. Right. So w- where are they gonna get money for cash flow and that sort of thing? Where are they gonna find this money? Uh look. I am not unsympathetic to the desire of the federal government to make sure that its investment is a good investment, right? To make sure that the networks are being built and that there's some accountability. But there are other ways to do this with smaller entities. You can have performance bonds. You can have insurance. You can have some other guarantor other than a bank. And what's interesting is I was on a phone call, if anybody's interested in uh, getting more involved in this issue. There is, Light Reading just had a, a story about um, a new coalition that AAPB is part of, uh, and I think Benton will probably be part of too, I hope, uh, that is pushing back on the letter of co- uh, credit requirement, but also proposing alternatives. It's not enough to crab. You have to have a you have to have to an alternative. If anybody's interested, again, they could just email me at gzone at aapb.us. People are interested in- in joining the coalition they should let me know but one of the things I was on a, a a call that actually already had two dozen people on it uh and there were bankers a lot of bankers were on that call mm-hmm. because they know they would be able to issue these which i i found actually somewhat surprising because i think they want to back they want to back these programs but you know they know these entities can't get letters of credit so um this is a big one i think i think of 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 I've got four concerns, but of all the concerns, I think this one is is the biggest one. And again, it affects Muni, obviously, but it also affects the other kind of diverse networks that we want, right? If we want to just throw it all to you know, to the the big cable comes and telecoms, then this works just fine. But you know that wasn't the purpose. If you recall, very early on in the conversations about broadband policy and the infrastructure bill. The Biden administration actually wanted to give a leg up to community broadband.
1: Yes. They wanted competition. Yes, exactly. Right.
0: Exactly. That was, that was, you know, all part of the big competition agenda that my friend Tim Wu put together and that got pushed aside, you know, uh, in and instead it says, well, you can't exclude these non-traditional uh, uh, broadband providers. Okay. That's fine. But when you have rules like this, that, just by effect, disadvantage them, then you're going in the exact opposite direction from where you started.
1: Yeah. Doug Dawson has outlawed some of the labor ones as well. So I don't know if those are on your list of four, but um, I think one of the other things on your list is that states may still not really give a uh, actual shot to uh, public entities to get the money.
0: Yeah. So even though the law, I'm a lawyer, I haven't really practiced it in a long time, but you know, one of the things I learned as a baby lawyer working for a guy named Andy Schwartzman at the Media Access Project was if the law is clear, then that's the end of the matter. OK, the law says that you cannot exclude non-traditional broadband providers. Yet the NTIA's Notice of Funding Opportunity, the NOFO, says, well, you just have to tell us if you're going to screw them. And I just I don't understand that I, there was you know, there was an opportunity. I understand the pressure but you have a law that says this all you need to do is recite it
2: mm-hmm. okay
0: now do i expect that in the states where you know the law says no way no how over our dead bodies you will have a you know community broadband network there's no community broadband network there to favor or disfavor but there's a lot of states as you know chris where there are limitations but there are plenty of community broadband providers north carolina and tennessee being you know, two of the most well-known, Utah being another. Well, can those states, can they exclude them? Could they prejudice them in any way or in any state, whether you have a restriction or not? And yeah, I I understand NTIA doesn't want to preempt uh, any law, but, you know, that there's a, there's a lot of space there between disfavoring community broadband and preempting the law. So I think the caution is, it's a little too much caution for my taste, Again, if they can't clear up the ambiguity, then at least act in a way that makes it very, very clear. Like when they're going over these state grant applications, like, no, 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 no. you can't do this.
1: Nancy Werner went over this with me in episode uh, 498 of the uh, Community Broadband Bits podcast. And I highly recommend that because um, like you, she's a lawyer. I'm not. Uh, And so, you know, I I offered a little bit of the sort of like uh, the pushback that I've been dealing with internally, which is that. Can I imagine a situation in which NTIA um, withholds money from North Carolina for some period of time? Like, it's a little hard to believe in an election year, but that is also their job. And that is what the law says. And they should at least act like they're going to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll see. You know, look, there's going to be a lot of pressure. um, But that's you know, again, that's what the law says. And that's again, if there was ambiguity in the law, I might not be happy, but I'd give them a little bit more rope. But there's no ambiguity in the law. Mm. And at a certain point, you've got to kind of put your foot down and say, look, we want competition. We want a a diversity of subgrantees. We don't just want the big guys to win everything. Uh, And that, you know, this is what the administration wants, you know, and this is what we're going to get. So, you know, maybe they purposefully were vague just to not invite any controversy at the get go. But I'm hoping by the time it gets and and I will be talking to them. Once, once it gets down to brass tacks mm-hmm. and are you going to get your money or not, uh, I hope they are very, very, very careful about what the what the state is is intending to do.
1: Yes. So you listed four concerns and I want to hold you to that. And so with uh, letter of credit, uh, whether or not the states uh, are able to uh, deny uh, sub, uh cities to be sub grantees. Uh, what are other top concerns?
0: So the the other two are not just. Concerns of community broadband, but there are also concerns, I think, of a lot of others. Is this new requirement that within one year of approving the initial grant application, so when the final grant application is submitted, it has to have all the subgrantees figured out? And I just
1: learned about this. This is crazy to me. I I don't understand how you could justify that.
0: (laughs) Well, Doug Dawson did write a really, really good piece about how actually how long it actually takes to figure this all out and. Uh, it's just, again, it just seems like a recipe to throw the money to the big guys.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, because, um, as Doug has explored in other areas as well, uh, I can imagine that many sub grantees are wrestling with whether or not they can actually comply with so many different requirements that are yeah. so poorly spelled out. Some of which directly conflict with with how the industry does business and i'm not talking about having to buy something from the united states that costs 25% more i'm talking about the fundamental ways in which specialized labor works right like a small isp doesn't need a horizontal boring team necessarily if they're not doing it very often right. and so like it's just it's very it's very complicated and I am deeply concerned on the the show that I do with Doug uh, called Connect This. Uh, you know, we've been joking about whether it was 60 percent or 90 percent of the money that's going to the big companies. And every week that goes by, I'm like, oh, man, it's getting closer to 90 in my mind, unless there's some serious changes in how NTIA plans to um, actually enforce these rules.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I said, I hope that good policy wins over political expediency and they take a step back and say, OK, or they're hearing from enough people. And I think it's critically important that, you know, folks weigh in with NTIA uh, and and express their concern. Because the last, you know, look, the um, what was the name of the program under Obama? I, I, it's B-TOP. B-TOP, yep. I, th- I thought b generally went very, very well. But it, I think if you ask, you know, the the average person who knows anything about b whether it's success, they would say no and hell no.
1: Right. There's a few awards that were demagogued, uh, but, you know, there was a lot of successful ones that uh, continued to provide significant gains to communities. And frankly, I mean, one of the things that I've seen is that the ones some of the ones that were initial successes have gone on to be less successful because they were captured. And the and the bigger companies that took them over did not adhere to the rules. And NTIA never bothered following up to enforce its rules on openness and things like that.
0: I mean, I think enforcement is critical, right? Enforcement, accountability, which leads me to my last point, yeah, uh, point of concern, and that is <clears throat> the fact that those areas who've gotten off and CAF awards, like does anybody remember the Connect America Fund? That was a long time ago, <laughs> uh, but they got ten years to build the network, so it's still live. That those areas, even though those areas are likely to go into default, the the, the networks are likely to default on on their promises are still considered served. So I was on a call with an equipment manufacturer, I don't remember which one, who told me that in southern Mississippi alone, there's 25,000 census blocks that are covered by RDOF winners that are likely to default now Mississippi is was one of the biggest grant recipients right I mean it's, right. it's got some serious connectivity issues
1: despite AT&T getting uh I think 300 million dollars all told from the Connect America Fund right. um which I just you know just you were you were there seeing those conversations I'm sure yeah. you remember um um uh O'Reilly saying that we need to get people a Chevy before we got them a Ferrari or whatever he was saying at the time and they didn't even get their dang Chevy like just just I mean it's just it's so infuriating so I'm sorry to jump in with that but like mississippi is one of my my hotbeds because it's like you know it's a third of a billion dollars went to deliver nothing to people in mississippi and now they're art off which may not deliver and just the promises that have been made and not kept i mean that's why i'm hoping cities in mississippi are hearing this and and joining to try and get their voice heard because uh in many cases they don't feel like they're heard in the in the state legislature i mean that's one of the dynamics that we see there no one's listening to those cities
0: Well, it's interesting because their senators, uh, Wicker and Hyde-Smith, sent a letter to uh, Chairwoman Rosenworcel saying, you know, what could be done about this? And she just kind of, I don't know if you saw the, uh, uh, if you saw her response, it was just like, well, you know, we expect people to keep to their promises. It was a total punt, (laughs) right? Uh, It was a total punt. And uh, what's been also interesting in the letter of credit, Uh, the group that I met with last week is a lot of the folks were from Mississippi. And Senator Wicker is very, very interested in trying to do something about it. So, you know, what could be done? You know, one idea I've heard thrown around by a number of people, including some state broadband office leaders, is if if you know you're on the road to default, you get a get out of jail free card. You know, you don't suffer. You just basically say, look, I can't can't do this. So it puts the it puts right. those areas back on the map. Is it ideal? No. But again, it's sometimes you gotta compromise in order to get good policy. And what is not good policy is that these areas that are unserved, which is the whole point of this program, right? Is this areas that are unserved are going continue to be unserved because of grants made years ago and networks not built. Right. So how do how do we find a way to get those areas back on? the unserved map on back on the bead map. And it's, it's going to take a little bit of the government saying, okay, well, you know, maybe th- things didn't work out here, but we have a whole nother tranche of money and here's how we, you know, here's how we do it. And certainly the FCC knows who's not keeping up to their construction schedules. They know who's in trouble. So give them the pass and let's get those areas served. But the the letter was not heartening.
1: I'll say one other thing, which I don't know. You track this, you know, much better than I do. Um, If we want a business model that works in Mississippi, we need an ACP that is funded into the future. (laughs) We don't have time to get into that, but I hope Senator Wicker recognizes that and will be fighting to make sure that the ACP has the funds necessary because of that deep poverty that you see across Mississippi.
0: Well, I have to address that. I'm sorry, Chris.
1: Oh, please. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that.
0: Well, what's been interesting is, you know, eight, Eight uh, Republican senators, including Senator Wicker, sent a letter to the president saying you have to refund this. And, you know, I I know there are some Democrats that care, but nobody is pounding the table. I've complained to high level staffers. I said, why is your boss not like putting out statements like one member of the House put a statement about rip and replace, which is this is, you know, ripping out the Chinese equipment for rural wireless carriers and putting in American equipment. And, and I said, OK, you put out a statement about that. Where's your statement in ACP? Well, he mentioned it at a hearing. He asked a question about it. I'm like, that's not somebody needs to wake up every single day and say, how do we get this program refunded? If I, If it's happening, I don't see it. I don't know if you mm-hmm. see it, but I haven't seen it.
1: No, no, I think uh, it is disheartening The the lack of attention We see from um, People that want to issue press releases About how great it is that we're building broadband With money they voted against But uh <laughs> <laughs> otherwise so gg uh it is is wonderful i want to recap though for people um you know uh, aapb uh is the american association for public broadband uh it's an organization that has been around for about a year looking for someone vibrant to uh to really get it going you're here now Uh, i hope people will encourage their cities to join it um we really need to uh to do this because this is not something that's going to be solved anytime soon. Like, I don't think in 10 years, you're not thinking, you know, you're going to be either retired or working on a different telecom issue. Like broadband is something (laughs) we'll be working on for a long time.
0: Yeah. I do want to encourage, and not just, you know, public officials and cities, you know, vendors, anybody who wants to work with this community, uh, and anybody who just loves the idea of community broadband. I am, that is part of my job in addition to writing op-eds and, and, and doing, you know, toolkits, I'm also trying to grow the membership because again, the more we have, I think it just creates like a rolling stone and it becomes inevitable that communities that want to do this will do it and they won't be stopped. So I want to be a force to be reckoned with, not just individually, but as an organization. And I'm really excited. Like I said, I love the local communities. I love working with local legislatures and mayors and such. And so I'm looking forward to building this community in a big way.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Of course. Thanks so much, Chris.
2: We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community Nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Muni Networks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.